This is episode 61 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events podcast. This episode is from our most recent event, the 2020 Annual Enrichment Conference Everyday Evangelism. This is session one, Monday night with James Gleason, titled Building an Evangelistic Church When You're Not an Evangelist. Thank you, Mark. Um, I didn't actually coin that out with the old. That was you. Um, I take no credit for that, and um, I don't think of you as old, just experienced. How about that? Uh, we are excited. I'm really excited uh, to have Jeff Enterstelt uh, with us to share, uh, but for now you have me. Uh, but Jeff's been a friend. Uh, my wife and I, we've known uh, he and Janie since they were youth pastors in Seattle. We were youth pastors and uh, probably 27, 28 years, and uh, just an incredible heart uh, for the lost and a heart for the church. And um, really looking forward to that and to hear what God is going to say through him. And um, on, you way, on your way in, you passed a couple books there. He likes bright colors, and so uh, orange and blue and things like that. We uh, have used those at our church, Saturate. And actually, with the men's equipping retreat that we just did, we used his gospel fluency. And if you haven't exposed yourself to that, you're going to get a lot of that with his heart and with his words up here. But it's really contained in, uh, in his books. Well, I'd like to begin with a story. I, I became uh, a senior pastor 20, just about 22 years ago. I was a youth pastor at my church. I had moved to Hillsboro in 94 and um, just loved youth ministry, never thought of doing anything but youth ministry, never thought of stepping down to be a senior pastor. That would be uh, really like the most depressing thing of my life. I wanted to be a youth pastor forever. And yet, you know, when God does what he does, uh, you just do it, right? And he called in that moment. And so I stepped into that role of senior pastor as my church, of my church there. And um, I had already been there for four years, and I was approaching some vacation that summer. And I had preached for uh, the summer and uh, decided to take a weekend off. And yet my wife and I, we lived right near there. We just walked to church, and we went to church even when we didn't have to. I thought that's worth some points right there. And, and so we showed up at church, and we sat towards the back as a good Baptist would. And I wanted to kind of watch what was going on. We had, uh, you know, the worship and everything, and we had a greeting time. Uh, we, we have this greeting time, and um, we stand up. And I look behind me, I turn around, and there's a brand new couple. Well, they had been coming a few weeks, I hadn't noticed them, Sam and Tracy. And so I greeted Sam and Tracy, and my wife and I were there. We said, hey, why don't we go to dinner? You can come to our house. Well, the, the whole story is they ended up inviting us to their house, which was kind of cool. And so a few weeks later, we went to Sam and Tracy's home, and we had dinner. It was a great time, brand new couple, young couples, young kids. They were teaching at Pacific University. And I thought, this is great. Some brand new folks maybe help with leadership. They know Christ. They have a passion for him. And things are going really well. I'm kind of doing that interview of finding out their story and what they believe and all this stuff. Well, it comes to dessert. And I'll never forget this. We were seated at their kitchen table. It was a, a beautiful handcrafted wood table with an old Americana-type flag on the top there built into the wood and the stain. And it was gorgeous. And as Tracy served the pie and coffee, Sam looked over at me and said, uh, we do have one question for you, though. And I said, sure. Sam looked at me and said, why don't you ever preach the gospel? And I swallowed my pie and drank a little bit of coffee, and I sputtered a pretty lame answer. I said, well, um, I, I'm not an evangelist, and, and that's not really my gift. 
you know, I've shared the gospel before, but I, I just don't really think that that's what God wants me to do. I think I'm called to preach and to do all this. And the more I talked, the more I realized what I was saying was really not a good thing. And so after we said goodnight, we went home and it was weeks. The Holy Spirit was speaking to me about how... Um, I was actually ashamed of the gospel, to be frank. I mean, what I mean by that is I believed the gospel, I was saved by the gospel, and I was able to lead young people to the gospel, and yet somehow with the church, I shied away because when I shared the gospel, I know none of you have ever had this experience, and I called for a response, nobody responded, and so I just didn't know if it was still working, you know? I'm telling you my heart here, so you can condemn me later. I know none of you have ever thought that, right? Our church began in 1980 to reach people that had just moved into Hillsborough with the gospel message. First Baptist Church had planted us just north of town. Intel had moved in with all of the other companies, and these younger families were moving in. And the first pastor was highly evangelistic, and he shared the gospel every weekend, and people were getting saved left and right and getting baptized. And of course, you know, as often, they weren't getting discipled, and so they were kind of trickling in and out. Hundreds and hundreds of people are on the rolls that were saved and baptized at that time period. At a high of 360 people or so, and yet hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people had come to Christ. And, and, um, and yet when he left, and there was a conflict because of that, uh, he left and then the next pastor pendulum swing was focused on those inside the church. You know, our numbers began to decline as the evangelistic temperature began to cool off. Those that had felt neglected by the pastor uh, began to be served. There was really, to be honest, a focus on those that were in the building and little concern for those without Christ. We had moved from being an externally focused church to being an internally focused church. And I, have to, I think you have to have both of those. What ended up happening, though, was our church had lost its first love for the lost. And I believe that when a church loses its first love for what we at Sunrise call the least, the last, and the lost, it's an old rescue mission phrase, um, I think you lose your reason for existing, which is making disciples. Tom Rainier uh, wisely wrote in his little book, Anatomy of a Deceased Church, he said, a church without a gospel-centered purpose is no longer a church at all. And that's kind of where we had settled down to. Our outward passion of reaching people for Jesus had waned and we settled more on an inward focus of keeping the people. How can it be standard operating procedure for a church to become disobedient to the Great Commission and accept that as a reality? If you have a Bible, uh, open up to Acts 14. Uh, we're in the book of Acts at sunrise, and I thought I'd pull one of these out because uh, it's, it's really our heart, and it's really what God has been doing at our church and in Acts 15, uh, Acts 14, excuse me, we're going to see how the church took some really huge leaps to be evangelistic. While you're turning there, I know you all know this, but the church started with Jewish believers reaching Jewish people. And as the church went into the parts of the world there, it was easy for Jewish people to go to the Jewish synagogues to reach Jewish people because they had a Jewish Bible. There was just a fundamental understanding of what was up and what was down, what was right and what was wrong. Uh, every once in a while, there'd be a group of Gentiles called God-fearers that would be in the midst, but they'd already accepted some of the basic truths of the Jewish belief, and so people would come to Christ. But for the most part, in the early part of the book of Acts, every presentation of Jesus is to people who already have a foundation 
a strong belief in the Bible. And as we see the Apostle Paul and his companions go out, this is one of those first times where we see the message of Jesus go to people that didn't have a Jewish belief system. They didn't have a basic understanding of the Bible. They didn't accept the things that everybody else had accepted. In fact, this is when they go into an area where there are many gods and many, god many goddesses. And uh, what we found at our church, and I, I, when I preached this, I, you know, I was just sharing a little bit about what we've discovered at Sunrise. And, and it was really just an understanding through this passage of Scripture as Paul and Barnabas go into Lystra of what I believe is how uh, a non-evangelist, and that's me, I'm not an evangelist, uh, I, I, I do the work of an evangelist in that sense, but it's work. I'm timid a lot. I'm fearful a lot, but I pray a lot. And I get up there and I share the message of Jesus, how an, a non-evangelist can be a part of building an evangelistic church. Well, the text begins in verse 8, chapter 14, verse 8, and it jumps into this. It says, in Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet. Paul and Barnabas have been traveling through. They end up in this little town, Lystra. Uh, they sat there. They saw a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Now, what did Paul and Barnabas do first when they went into this community? We see them do this along their journeys, along their travels. Well, they looked for a need. They looked for people that were receptive. Uh, and, and I don't know, I don't know the picture, but all of a sudden they show up here and there's a guy that's lame from birth and he's sitting there and he probably can't get up. He's probably a beggar. And so Paul begins to speak to him. He begins to share with him. And he sees that he has some kind of faith and his natural response is to care for him in that moment. What we found at our church is that caring for the needy in our community was the first open door of sharing the gospel. Here you see a beautiful mixture of, of ministering in both word and deed, and this is what Jesus did, because Jesus taught people, but he loved people. He encouraged people, he challenged people, he called them to deeper levels of discipleship, but he also fed people, he healed people. Jesus didn't just preach a message, he lived a message and demonstrated a message. And I believe that there are people all around us in our communities, right around our neighborhoods, right around where our people live, that have deep needs. And I believe that when you take the word of God to them and you have the, not just the word, but the actual deed going together. At Sunrise, I had to wrestle with this as a senior pastor, is that I had a growing group of people that wanted to preach a message of redemption. And I'm all over that because that's the way to have a, a relationship with God today and for all eternity. But then I began to have a group of people that wanted to share a message of restoration where we wanted to meet the needs of the people that were right there. And so I think we have to have redemption and we have to have restoration. And every once in a while, I have to grab all my redemption friends and I have to point them over here and say, I'm really super excited that you want to get them into eternity, but they're not interested until you get them into your home. Okay? And then I got to take the people over here. They're all about the restoration. Say, I'm really glad that you're excited about feeding people. I'm really glad you're excited about serving people and loving people and, and healing their wounds. I'm really good. But that doesn't count for anything if it's not for eternity, right? Because the only real change can happen when God's spirit moves inside of us. I think when we actually see people who were selfish, self-centered, egotistical, have a life change and begin pouring themselves out, giving their time and money away, meeting the needs of the people in their community, it is a miracle. It may not be in the level of a miracle like Paul did here, but I'll tell you this, when people come in and they receive Jesus Christ and the inner focus of their heart changes from what they want to what God would want, 
That's the miraculous, and people marvel at that. As a church, we just simply began looking around and asking the question, what are the needs? If, if we just had the block that our church was on, we were about 150 people, and we just said, if we could just look around us, what, what's going on in the neighborhoods? We began to walk the neighborhoods. We just began to pray. And we just said, God, open our eyes to the needs that are in this community. Um, if we were bold, we'd knock on doors and just say things like, hey, we just want to pray for you. Is there anything we can pray for you about? We didn't bring warm cookies or anything like that. You know, we didn't try to lead them in a gospel presentation or anything like that. We just said, we just want to pray for you. We're from Sunrise Church, and we would just like to be here if there's a need. And we had incredible opportunities to pray for people in moments of need. Uh, we began to go to the city, and we just went downtown, and we just went to the city leaders and asked the question, what do you need? What are you, what are you doing that you have a need? And for the longest time, they just held us at bay, and they were skeptical. And then one day, they opened their doors and said, well, you know, we've got this thing going on, and uh, we need some people to help out. And we started serving. We started serving our city. Uh, we went to our school district because some of the schools uh, are incredibly underfunded, and I know you don't have that in your part of the world, but um, school teachers are buying all their own supplies, right? Teachers are paying for these things, and we started surrounding school teachers and saying, what if we did drives in our church and in our community, and we served you so you could serve students? We began to reach out to the district level. We began to go to the police, to the fire department. We began to go to the jails. We began to go to the hungry. Uh, we found just the greatest opportunities to serve people and to tell them about the love of Jesus Christ. We ended up serving the homeless community. And we began to see that when we have a ministry that serves people that are homeless, we can show them the ultimate home in Jesus Christ. And we can introduce the one who was without a home. And we did both of those, word and deed. And I think a church can do that when you set your heart on serving people and seeing the cares that are all around you, the need that's all around you. For us as a church, we say it this way. For us, service has become the currency of influence in our culture. And when we can serve and show people love, no strings attached, they do open their heart. And they do respond, and we get to talk about Jesus. Not everybody accepts it, receives it, but they can't deny that we have an incredible love for one another and for them. As the story goes on in verse 11, it says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, uh, which is really cool because Paul and Barnabas, they don't know what's going on here at this moment. This is a great story. The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bowls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Has that ever happened to you when you preach the gospel? No, not at all. This is the weirdest thing, right? But there's some story there. There's some history here. This crowd is not only religious, they're very superstitious. Their response to the healing was immediate. It was emotional. Their only conclusion that was that Paul and Barnabas were gods because only gods can do that, right? But according to the Greek mythology of their day, those gods had actually shown up hundreds of years before. According to the myth of their community, they believed that Zeus and Hermes had shown up in their community of Lystra, desired to be shown hospitality, and no one offered them a home except one old couple. And so Zeus and Hermes, in a rage, just wiped people out. That's like the ultimate version of smiting people, right? Just in this retaliation, the only people that were there were an old couple. That's the myth of that culture. That was, in the, that was in the water. People believed that. And just to make sure to cover their bases, when the citizens of Lystra saw the miracle of Paul and Barnabas, they assumed that the gods were revisiting them, right? Very superstitious in their belief system. 
They remembered the story of what happened to previous citizens, and I'm, I'm pretty sure they were going to make sure nothing was like that was going to go on, and so they began to offer sacrifices to them. See, what's going on here is very simply this, that Paul's act of loving, of just caring for someone in the moment, sharing Jesus with someone, actually beginning that message and seeing the need and meeting that need, revealed the deeper longings and the deeper fears of the people that were there. I think an important step that we need to take, other than just on the surface level, caring for the needs that are there, and that's important, is to begin to identify the deeper longings that are going on in our hearts and our community. I, I do believe this. In every heart, there's a longing. In every soul, there is a desperate cry. Um, we mask it. We're so good at it in our affluent culture, in our middle-class-type world, uh, in our cities, in our suburbs, in our rural areas. We are really good at doing everything to hide the depths of the pain of our heart. And we chase possessions and pleasures, and it never, ever satisfies. We know that. Solomon wrote, God has planted eternity in the human heart. And we know there's a longing that can't be fulfilled by this world. Chaucer wrote in Canterbury Tales that a drunken man knows he has a home. He just can't remember how to get there. And I think in every heart, we know there's something. We know there's a deep longing. We just have been drunk by the things that we've participated in. And it blinds us to our ability to actually go home. Jesus fulfills and satisfies the deepest of longings. I don't think our community always gets that, but when we show up and begin to address the pain inside of people, Jesus shows up. We can speak into that. We can preach the message of Jesus in the middle of that. Um, I don't know when the last time the longings of, of your community broke your heart. I was driving my boys to school, uh, my younger and middle son, and I take them to school every morning, and we're listening to the radio, and a 90s band came on. And oh, yeah, they made fun of that. And um, they said, what is this? My youngest, he has that, you know, what is this stuff? I said, well, it's called the cranberries. And he goes, I don't understand that. And I go, well, and I started explaining. They're Irish, and they got the sound, and then there was this guitar, and this is a post-grunge, and there was this thing going on, and people liked it. I liked it. My wife liked it. We listened to it. And they're like, I don't get it. And I'm like, that's okay. But can I tell you something about Dolores O'Riordan, the lead singer? She had everything the world would say mattered. And the deepest longings of her heart were never satisfied. And recently she killed herself. And I said, how could you ever get to the top of everything and have everything the world promises you and still be empty? Then I reminded them of Tim Birdling, Avicii. I don't know if you've listened to EDM or electronic dance music or anything like that. Um, I know D. Duke does. He's super, no. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. My kids listen to it and we got into it and wake me up and all that stuff, levels and everything. And we're rocking out with this stuff and the drop and the beat and everything. It was cool and all that stuff. And um, I showed him a documentary on Tim, young 20-something young man who a Swedish DJ who mixed for the greatest bands of the world, incredibly famous, hundreds of thousands of people at times in his concerts and festivals. And he, in this documentary, you can see it on Netflix, he's walking down the hallway after a concert, and he looks at all the, the parade around him. There are people that are paid to make you feel good, to lie to you, to tell you they did a good job, and to affirm whatever people are selling. And he walks down the hallway, he says, I don't understand it. I have everything I've ever wanted and I'm still empty inside. And I said, sons, that's exactly what happens with the world. The enemy of our souls has lied to us 
He steals, he kills, he destroys, and yet we go willingly down the path because we believe that lie, and it doesn't satisfy us. At the end of the documentary, Tim is on a dock with his acoustic guitar, and he's playing a song, and the drone shot pulls back. He's on this island just off of Africa with white sand. Talk about heaven on earth, right? He's reached the top of everything, and it pulls back, and the words on the screen are simply this. Weeks later, Tim grabbed his last bottle of wine, drank himself drunk, broke it on the rocks, cut his wrists, and bled out. How could you have everything you ever wanted and it not satisfy? Because there are longings in our heart that nothing will ever satisfy but Jesus. And if we see that in our culture, if we begin to see that in our community, I mean, you'll begin to realize that there is something that we have that's more than just a message. It's a life. And it's a life that I think people are longing to find. What are the deeper longings of the people in your community? Have you identified them? If you go on in the text, starting in verse 14, you go down, it says, when the apostles, <laughs> this is exciting, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, when they figured out, they tear their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He he has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. This is one of the strangest gospel presentations I, I read, right? Because there's no, there's no foundation yet, right? There's no way to get from A to B. You got to start back there before the alphabet begins and just kind of like what Paul does in Athens. And I, I, I notice all this about you, right? I look at this. There's some big things going on here. And what, what he's just basically saying is here is that there is something you're building your life upon. And I want to tell you it's empty. It's futile. He, say, he uses the words worthless things. He's talking about their belief system, their idols, their religion. It's false, it's empty, it's deceptive, it's ineffective. In other words, you're, all these idols that you, you, you bow down before and you sacrifice to, they promise you, but they never, ever satisfy. One thing we began to discover is we began to move into our community and meet the needs and care for people and begin to understand the deeper longings and the addictions and the pains and the struggles of people was we had to peel back the curtain and, and call them what they were and we had to call them idols. And we said, you are actually worshiping an idol, and it will fail you. People in that day, of course, openly worshiped whatever idol helped them get what they want. As a nation, you had national idols, and you had you know, idols for community. You had idols for your city. You had idols for your family. You had idols, depending on your workplace, wherever you worked, whether it was a guild, you know, part of your income went to the idols and went to the worship and went to the party and things like that. And the bottom line is their idols gave them hope and meaning. But you know what I know, that's futile, right? And it's kind of funny because when we're modern people looking and thinking, you know, what a bunch of foolish people to bow down before something made of stone or wood. I had the privilege of going to Turkey and Greece two years ago, doing the Footsteps of Paul trip, and um, walk through all these places. And, and uh, it's pretty phenomenal to walk through these massive, massive remains of temples. My wife and I, uh, about 20 years ago, went to the Temple of Karnak in Luxor down in or upper Egypt there, and these columns, and how could you not be impressed by these idols? 
How could you not be impressed when you'd walk into a town? And so I described to my sons walking into Corinth that day and going down into the place where all these temples were. And you see all these places, and how could you not be impressed by these incredible structures? And how could you not be impressed when people had given their lives to that, when they were worshiping them? And so we're sitting here actually at the Cheesecake Factory at Washington Square Mall. We don't go there a lot because it takes forever to get a seat, and it costs a lot of money, and cheesecake is not good for you. Um, but we went there anyway, and I'm explaining this trip, and I'm showing them pictures on my iPad and talking about idols, and they're looking at me like, how could anybody be so foolish? And I said, well, let me just change this and make a metaphor out of this. I said, where are we at right now? He said, we're at the mall. I said, I, I, think, I think Corinth still exists. I think we just walked into it. And I think that some people are going to the temple of Apple, and some people are going to the temple of Samsung. Some people are going to the temple of Lego. That's where we went a lot when my boys were young. Some people are going to the temple of Victoria's Secret. They're going to the temple of Dick's Sporting Goods. We're, we, that's just what we do, right? We still do the same exact thing. And we pay our money down. And we get a phone, just like that one. <laughs> and it's supposed to satisfy us, but it goes off at the wrong times. It sadly disappoints us, right? I said, we're no different than the people of old. We've just gotten smarter in how we hide our idols. And if you look around in your culture and your community, you realize we may not bow down to the fertility god Baal, but we certainly worship sex and pleasure, don't we, as a culture and community? We have an idol. Uh, we may not physically bow down to the temple of Aphrodite, but we sure worship beauty. We may not burn incense to Artemis, but we give our lives over to the pursuit of money and pleasure. We may not sacrifice our children to the fires of Molech, but we sacrifice them to the fires of abortion, right? And we're okay with that, because if anything gets in my way of having what I want, got to destroy it. Years, years ago when we started this ministry to ex-prisoners and we began to reach people coming out of jail and prison, we started reaching sex offenders. And that's, well, that's a fun thing. Boy, uh, it's, it's messy. It's, uh, we had no idea what we were doing. And so we grabbed the police and the Department of Corrections and the deputies and the sheriff's department said, teach us. And, and yet the, the neighbors weren't too happy. Again, I get it. That makes sense, right? And so we're at this community gathering place, the senior center, and we're there. And the police and the Department of Corrections and, and the, the, the guy over all the uh, uh, parole uh, PPOs for the sex offenders, he was telling, and they were talking, and why this is a good thing, it's making our city safer, and people are getting angrier and angrier, and I get up, and I talk about our heart, and why we're doing this, and Jesus changes lives, and if you really want change, a sex offender can change, because anybody can change, and I'm doing this whole thing, and when all was said and done, people were not very happy, uh, but I'm in the hallway, and this big guy, this big guy comes up, and he pushes his finger into my chest, and he pushes me against the wall, and this is what he said to me, I'll never forget, he goes, well, if our property values start to drop, you're going to hear from us. And the first thing I thought, and I almost said it, was, now I know you're idle. I'm glad I didn't say it. I like my teeth. An idol is anything that we put in first place, right? Augustine wrote, sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and try to desperately fulfill it without God. Not only is it a sin, it's a perversion distortion of the image of the creator in us all these good things all our security are rightly found only and completely in him and we have idols everywhere 
that people try to find fulfillment. Kierkegaard wrote, sin is building your identity on anything else besides God. And that's what everybody's doing, right? That's what we do when we put something in the place of God. Paul and Barnabas just walked in and said, I got to tell you, these are worthless things. These idols are dead, but there is a living God. These idols are worthless, but there is a God of power who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it. These idols promise everything. They deliver nothing. In a nutshell, Paul and Barnabas just pointed out, said, you know, Everybody lives for something. I'd like to introduce you to something that actually is worth living for. And if we're honest, we look around in our communities, people are mastered by things. People are servants and slaves by dreams and people and crowds and money and power and possessions. And you and I have a message that the only God, the really the only one and true God is the only one worthy of worship. And when we come to him and when we experience his life change, he's the one that's worthy of bowing down to, right? And yet we can look around with compassion and pain and we can call out the idols and we can point out the truth to people. I wish we could say that everything that we've done in Hillsborough, Washington County has been received greatly. I'd be lying to you if I said that. It's not true at all. Um, There has been pushback. If you continue on the text, verse 19, it says, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul, that's the old school style, and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. I, I can only think of Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator when I hear this, because it's like my worst day, I read this and I go, I am a wimp, right? I, I, you know, I get an insult and I just kind of cry and whine inside. Woe is me. And it's like, this guy was, they thought he was dead. That's how bad it was. And I could just see this hand and this rock and getting up. And what did he do? He went back into that city. Why? Because he loved those people who had just tried to kill him because they had idols. They worshiped worthless idols. They had deep longings and they had needs. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraged them to remain true to the faith. They round up their missionary journey. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Boy, that was an understatement for Paul and Barnabas, right? Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Yeah, we know this, and if you, if you attempt to move out and call out the idols, uh, there will be people who receive the message. There'll be people who reject the message. As a friend of mine says, there are always windows of opportunity and windows of opposition in every culture and every community. You have to find the windows of opportunity to share the gospel. You have to be willing to endure the hardships. Every once in a while, um, I've found myself on television, and that's never a good thing, especially if you see me on a big screen as you do now. Um, when, when a neighbor complains, right now we're dealing with something on next door. What a great little app to complain about things. And a sex offender said our address is where they live, and, and we can't explain that nobody lives at the church, you know, except God. Um, you know, <laughs> and if we're trying to explain this, and it doesn't matter because people grab their pitchforks and their torches, and they storm the castle, and they, that's just what people do, right? And we've had to stand there, and we've had to explain that, you know, All we're doing is sharing love with people. We're pointing them to God. And we believe that a life change is possible. 
We've had to endure a lot of hardships from people on the outside. You know, in the early days, I had to endure hardship from those on the inside. This totally blew my mind. When I began preaching the gospel with every message, and I don't mean John 3:16 or plan of salvation, but in every text preaching the gospel, um, people came into my office and said, why are you doing that? And I said, well, I wake up every morning and I think I should be preaching the gospel to myself and I'm pretty sure you need it too, you know? And until we can receive the gospel personally, I don't know that we're going to ever know what it is and how to preach it. And I remember this gal walking into my office and she said, we're going to leave the church. I said, why? Because you preach the gospel here. Now, I, I don't understand that. I'm sitting there, I go, well, what am I supposed to be doing? And she goes, you're supposed to be preaching to believers. And I go, but I am. And you need the gospel. And she got angry and left. And I'm like, yeah. I didn't say that, but I thought that. <laughs> why do we need the gospel? We're already saved. One of the hardest things for us was when people left the church because people were getting saved. When people are saying, well, what, those new people. I had a gal stand up once, and she was angry, and she pulled me in the forehead. She goes, why are those new people greeting at the door? What I wanted to say was, because you're not, okay, but I didn't. I said, well, they just, they just showed up and wanted to serve, and so they're greeting people. You could do it too. She never did. That was a nice side of me, right? I just can't, I couldn't believe it. When believers said, we don't want to hear that message of Jesus. If you desire to turn up the evangelistic passion at your church, though, you've got to face this reality. You cannot lead people where you're not living. And one of the hardest things for me was to realize that no church becomes evangelistic from the bottom up. I couldn't hire this one away. I couldn't committee this one. I couldn't program this one. I had to get alone and realize that I have to share the gospel. And, and, and I get sweaty palms, and I get nervous, and I fumble the words, and I don't remember all the things, and I share the gospel, and somehow people come to Jesus. But I, I didn't ever see people. For the longest time, I didn't see lost people. I walked right by them. I drove right by them. I shopped right by them. I got gas right by them, and I just didn't see the lost people all around me. Until God convicted me that they were there, I just was focused on other things, and and so I just began intentionally building relationships with people that were spiritually far from God and muddying my way through it and figuring it out. And I began to tell stories about that, you know, appropriate stories on the weekend and, and um, began doing it in such a way that all of a sudden people realized, well, if the pastor who's super clumsy with this is going to do it, I'm going to try it too. And it was amazing as people began to share the gospel. Our church had become so focused on the maintenance of ministry that we forgot about the mission of making disciples. We began to be content with living in disobedience to the Great Commission. I was talking to Josh uh, Duncan the other day, and he was in a coaching group, and he shared this. It was, it was great. I really appreciated this. It was, it was a fleshing out that I hadn't quite heard it with that way before, that in the move in God, God's heart with him on the gospel was he began to preach to the people that weren't there yet. He began to preach the gospel in such a way, and one day he looked up, and all of a sudden, there were lost people there, you know, because the people in his church began to realize this is a safe place to bring people who are far from God, and I appreciated that. That's, that's just an encouragement to me. Um, I was up in Seattle not long ago talking with Pastor Ryan, and um, he said, we just came to the point that we had so many programs in their church, we couldn't have any time to build relationships with lost people because we kept people perpetually busy. And I said, what did you do? He goes, we killed all the programs. And I said, how did that not kill you? <laughs> he goes, it almost did. We just killed every program. 
because we wanted our people to go barbecue next door. We wanted our people to go hang out with friends. And we were busy keeping people busy as a church. When your passions shift from reaching people that need Jesus to pleasing people who already have him, sacrifices must be made. Trying to keep the people you already have becomes business as usual and the ministry focus turns inward. And the voices inside the church are always louder than the voices outside the church. My wife reminded me of this on the drive over. You know, don't let anybody think we have it figured out because we, we really, we, sometimes we just have no idea what we're doing. In the early days, we had no idea what we were doing. We were just 150 people and Sam and Tracy confronted me and I went home and I had a repentance moment that I didn't really believe God could do it. And so I was gonna play it safe. In Jesus' words to the seven churches of Revelation, he gives them both commendation and correction. And if, to the church of Ephesus, he warned them with these words. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That's just a strange warning. It's, it's, for me, it's cryptic. It's, I don't exactly get it, but Jesus was concerned about it, right? MacArthur in his commentary wrote this, love, this love could include love for God, love for Christ, love for each other, love for the lost. It's all of that combined. Jesus was so concerned with Ephesus. And if we study Ephesus, the best pastors, the best teachers, the best everything, the best letter, right, <laughs> was sent to them. And they should have gotten it all, right? And somehow years later, they had lost their first love. And if Jesus was so concerned that they weren't going to repent, and if they didn't repent, he would remove their lampstand from them. That's pretty significant. It's a warning. Matthew 5, 14 to 16, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. I had a wake-up call one day in the early days, and I was preaching through the seven letters of Jesus. And I walked around the church, and I wondered this, and this is not a very theological thing. I don't know if it's theologically accurate. I didn't know what to do with it, but I wondered, God, did, did you remove the lampstand from this place? Is it possible to get the light back? Or are we just going to go through the motions and do church for the rest of the days? Because that's not what I signed up for. I signed up for making disciples, and yet people aren't coming to Jesus. And I, I, I don't know what is the problem. And that's about the time Sam and Tracy began to work with me. And they actually mentored me in how to share the gospel. <laughs> I loved it. I felt foolish because I was getting paid to do that, right? And I wasn't doing it personally. I, I don't want the lampstand to, to be removed from the churches in the Northwest. I'm sure you're like me. I've seen really nice churches and really nice weekend services, really nice buildings and nice programs designed to reach really nice people. Um, but I've also seen a lot of churches that have forgotten the very reason the church was planted because that was our story, and we forgot the gospel. A number of years ago, I was bicycling home, not on my motorcycle. I do that too, but on my bicycle and I was uh, 
biking home, and, and I had, um, you know, your helmet on and everything, and I, I had some uh, headphones on, not very loud, okay, and I was listening to a podcast, and, and so I was uh, biking home, and I get about two-thirds of the way home, and this loud screaming klaxon sound is in my ears. I thought somebody had called me, but it was, I've never heard this sound before, and I pulled over to the side, and I pulled those earbuds out, and I looked at my phone. It was an amber alert. I had never heard an Amber Alert before on my phone. And I looked at that, and it gave the information about this young gal had been taken away, and there was a car heading up I-5 North from Roseburg. And I was looking at that, and I, I started to weep because I thought, what, what young gal is caught in a car right now, taken from her family, probably going to be trafficked or probably going to be abused, might even be murdered. And I began to pray for that gal, and I began to pray that, you know, somehow God would, you know, get the word out, and there was a, a silver car or whatever. And, and I, in that moment, I, I thought to myself, I thought to myself as I put my helmet back on, I put the earbuds back on, I started to bike the rest of the way home. I thought to myself, God, what if we could hear that same alert every time somebody died without Christ? What if you could move in my heart to walk my city to walk my neighborhood, to walk the neighborhood around the church and just hear your heart for the people that are dying and spending an eternity without you. I'm not good at this. I struggle with this. Our church, we step out in faith, and I believe that God always honors faith. But the first thing I had to do is I had to have a repentance moment. I had to have a come to Jesus moment and realize that I was actually ashamed of the gospel. It worked for other people who were really good at it. But for me, I'm just going to preach to people who are in the room. I'm just going to do what I know well, and I think everybody will be happy. And once Sam and Tracy confronted me with the truth, I just couldn't be happy anymore. And at CB Northwest and our churches, I just wonder how many of our churches, how many of us need to have a repentance moment? Do we really believe the gospel changes lives. Do we really believe that God loves all people, that he longs for all people to be saved? Do we really believe as we look at our communities that life change could happen? Do we look around and see the needs? Do we see the deeper longings? Are, are we bold enough to talk about the real idol behind the problem and the addictions and the struggles that people in the church and people outside the church wrestle with? And are we willing to do whatever it takes and I mean that whatever it takes amidst the hardship to share the message of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for Sam and Tracy who confronted me and embarrassed me. Who called me out with love and compassion. And then who mentored me. Who modeled it for me on how to share the gospel and how to share the message of hope through Jesus. Father, the only hope for CB Northwest is the gospel. The only future for the communities we live in is Jesus. Amidst the death and decay of our culture, Jesus can show up, Lord. And you've put him in our lives, in our hearts, in our churches, in our pulpits, in our ministries. Father, I pray you would light a flame in each of our hearts that would burn so brightly that people would look at us and wonder what has happened. And as we begin to muddle through this and 
just take baby steps toward it. God, I pray your faithfulness would show up in salvation. I pray your church would show up and make disciples. May we not grow complacent with the Great Commission or disobedient to your words and think that everything is going to be okay. Father, you've given Mark 20 years here. If you give me 10 years, I pray that the light of the gospel explodes in the Northwest with people that are willing to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to know this is the power of salvation to all who believe. You've done it in us and through us. May the circle and the flame just burn so brightly. And may it set our churches on fire and our communities be changed and people be saved. But may it start with repentance. You're a loving and kind God. You're a faithful God. I pray that you would not take the lampstands away, but you would show us how to be reignited for Christ. We pray in his name, amen.